Good morning, everybody. Good morning, church. As somebody says, I don't know who it is, but I like the expression church. We come as a group, as a body of Christ, not individually to do our own little thing, but as a church. So good morning to you all. Now, if you've listened carefully to what we've been singing, the choir started and the hymn, Lead Me, O Thy Great Jehovah, and the one that we just uh, sang and read carefully as we sang. They are eloquent sermons in themselves, are they not? Do you agree? I feel therefore to, like going back to my seat, singing them again, going for coffee and fellowship with you and then heading off home. Because most has already been said, except that I, there's a second service, so I can't go home until after that one. Guide me, O thy great Jehovah, pilgrim through a foreign land. I fear, or no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. In my need, his power he has displayed. Thank you, Andrew, by the way, for standing in at a second's notice and reading these verses. Uh, you will have noticed that Brother Andrew does this often. Whenever something happens, doesn't go quite to plan, he's up here. And so thank you for that, Andrew. Now, he read 18 verses. Um, we will not go through the 18 verses verse by verse. So don't worry, we won't be here for three hours. <laughs> now, I have titled my message this morning, Are You Living in Exile? And I thought long and hard about that because... I wonder whether someone or some of you have said, well, Tim, I wish you hadn't brought that up. Are you living in exile? It reminds me of the pain of having to leave my own country, my own family, my own people, and travel, travel somewhere else, unknown, full of difficulties, a stranger in a foreign land. Did you have to remind me of that this morning? Well, obviously, I don't intend to stir up the pain you might be subject to because of these circumstances. Working in social ministry, one is painfully aware of that. And we work with people that are in that situation amongst us. But I think it is a pertinent question. Are you living in exile? And my prayer this morning, therefore, is that this question should make us reflect on how we conduct ourselves through the time of our pilgrimage here on earth. For we are all pilgrims. The time of our grief that we suffer for a little while in all kinds of trials, some more, some less. So what do we need to know and what do we need to practice so that our reaction to suffering be the right one. Now I am also aware that I haven't suffered much as other people in this congregation. Yes, I've got kidney problems. I throw out stones from time to time. It's painful, etc., etc. But there's other type of suffering. So I'm painfully aware of dealing with a subject which is tough. So I mentioned that before we start to look at briefly 
some of the verses of this letter. Let us pray first before we do so. Lord, we thank you for being able to be in your house, but more so being in your presence, because you are here. And Lord, as we come, we want to be spoken to by you. We want you to take away anything that is bothering us or occupying our minds and our hearts so that we may listen to your word and that your word will come and abide in our hearts and give much fruit for your glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So first, an exceedingly brief background to the book of, or the first epistle of Peter. There we go. A brief introduction. Written to exiles away from home, experiencing difficulties, the hardships of life. That is the audience. It might resonate, resonate with us as well, right? Peter himself is in exile. He's writing from Rome. That will tell us, he tells us at the end of the, of the epistle, five, chapter 5, verse 13. And uh, where church tradition will tell us that he was martyred, along with other Christians, by the emperor uh, Nero around 64 AD as scapegoat and scapegoats possibly for the fire that destroyed part of Rome. And some say that he actually started himself but others got the blame and were martyred. And so was Peter, according to church, church tradition. And this points, this, this fact points to the, more or less the date when this epistle was written, around 60 AD, more or less, take a few years. And the exiles were scattered throughout the provinces, Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you wonder where it is, that's modern-day Turkey, right? You've got Greece on the left, and you will have Israel just here at the bottom right. Now, you might wonder, you know, the people that are more um, order, ordered in the way of thinking, a little bit more kind of uh, block-headed like myself, why on earth did he put it in this order? Well, <laughs> maybe it is a route taken by the messenger who took this epistle to the churches. Maybe that's the route he took. Maybe not, but that's some explanation at least. And who was it? Well, probably Silas, who Peter mentions in the last chapter in verse 12. Now, there are two main themes that I wish to touch upon, and the experts and the doctors of the law and the Bible amongst us, and there are a few, I think, We'll say, well, there's much more to this book. I'm just going to touch on two of them. You could, we could also talk about the demand for holiness and the Christian witness in the world and other themes. And I'm just going to touch on two of them. And the first one, one of the main themes of this letter of the Apostle Peter is suffering. Suffering and suffering in exile. Which is not surprising, really, that this theme should come up when he's talking or writing to exiles, pilgrims, foreigners, who are also young in the faith, by the way. If we look at this verse here, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So he's writing to people who are suffering 
And some of them would have been young in the faith as well. And Peter sends a message of encouragement to them, intended to remind them that they were God's special people, separated by God for a specific purpose in their life, and that their sufferings were a temporary testing, and it had a particular purpose. So this is one of the themes, one of the main themes. Suffering. And the other notable characteristic is that this epistle is Christ-centered. The apostle refers to our Lord Jesus Christ time and time again. I counted kind of quickly, more or less, about 20 plus times in five short chapters. The apostle Peter is referring constantly to our Lord Jesus Christ, drawing our attention constantly to our Lord Jesus Christ who is our salvation. So those are the two themes. Suffering and our Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation. So my objective this morning, by the way, there are some verses that talk about suffering. You see in every chapter, every single chapter, there's a verse that has to deal with suffering, both of the exiles and of Christ himself. Yeah? In every single one. So my objective this morning is to take these two themes, suffering in exile, and what the Lord Jesus has done for me, for us, and to see, and I admit at a very basic level, how they relate to each other in causing an impact in the way we are thinking, and in causing an impact in how we live our lives as exiles, for that is what we are, are we not? Pilgrims and strangers on earth, temporary residents whose true home is in heaven. Peter refers to some of these terms. The writer to the Hebrews refers to those terms as well, Hebrews 13, sorry, 11, 13 to 14. That is what we are, traveling, exiled, with everything that that means and everything that that throws at back at us in our own lives. Now, I can see some faces that clearly say, you know, Jim, are you going to address the thorny subject of uh, suffering? Because it's a very thorny subject indeed. And you might be getting into a massive minefield there, young man. I know that it is. And I know that great minds and great Christians, take C.S. Lewis, for instance, have talked and written extensively on the subject. And that's why I say I'm approaching this subject at a rather basic level. Because it is a deep and personal emotional issue. Individual, deep and personal and emotional issue. That can strike the foundations of our lives pretty severely. And can strike the foundation of faith as well. So it's a difficult subject that I'm wading into here. But I do hope and pray that we may be able to take something individually away from this message. So let's turn our attention to the suffering theme to start with. We have already mentioned that one of the notable aspects of this epistle is the repetition of the term suffering in different ways of expression. 
And Peter's readers, as I said before, are going through difficult times. Though many scholars believe that the variety of suffering, of trials, refers to social exclusion and general harassment, and not to state-instigated persecution, which would be unleashed with a vengeance later on, starting in the second century, and reached its peak at the end of the third and fourth century, where they were persecuted, the Christians, just for being Christians, for being different, for not... Um, joining the rituals, pagan rituals toward Caesar, for not participating in them, for not being patriotic. They were actually even accused for natural disasters, can you believe it? And they were incredibly persecuted, but I don't believe that is the case that Peter is referring to here. The letter doesn't necessarily mention persecution per se, that would reach them, particularly in Asia Minor later on, in more or less 90 or 19 to 96 AD. Peter is instead speaking of suffering that comes from a hostile environment, from hostile society around them and around us. They are leaving us strangers in exile. If you look at the epistle, and that's a little bit of homework for you, it speaks of evildoers speaking against them and slandering them. The Spanish translation, one of them says, murmuran, are they murmur against. That is not direct confrontation. That could be done behind the backs of and sort out whatever might happen to them later. But they are excluded from society. We can imagine the lives they lived, relegated to the fringes of society perhaps, misfits, looked upon as a threat to others, blamed for other things, stigmatized. Have you noticed a little bit of that in Spain or any other country? When exiles come in, oh, they're coming over here to take our jobs. You heard that one, haven't you? All they're doing is roaming the streets. It is just one expression of the multitude forms of suffering that comes from living in a fallen world, society around us, and what it throws at us. And then Peter speaks of suffering as a common experience that should be considered the expected lot of every Christian. There are verses that it says, mindful of God, or he's referring to conscience, one, does, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. There's another verse in 4.13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings as a Christian. If anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Chapter 4, verse 16. And then he says, you know, this kind of suffering is, being, is happening to, to, to every brother around all over the world. So you see the difference? Hostile environment, the suffering that comes from living in a fallen world and everything that that means. And the suffering for being a Christian. Suffering in its various expressions, therefore, is the common experience of every human being in a fallen world. The thing is that Christians have an extra load, an extra source of suffering. Our identity 
as Christians. And in spite of our good deeds, as Peter says to these people in chapter 2, verse 12, in spite of the good deeds, you will be persecuted. You know, at times I think, you know, you can, rational, you, you can be rational with people and argue with them and make them see. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen world and you will not, and you cannot expect rational behavior from everybody around you. Either as a Christian or as a non-Christian. We are in a fallen world. And we will suffer the consequences at various levels of that. It follows, therefore, that Christians are not exempt from either type of suffering. For our Lord suffered and we should expect to be treated instead, be mistreated and mocked too. Yeah? There is what some call the health and wealth gospel. Have you heard of that? Well, they say, you know, they'll be against this. If you're a Christian, <laughs> you'll be rich and you'll be healthy. You only need faith, of course. You have to put something on your side, you know. And when our human nature gets the better of us, we sometimes display what I call a Volvo mentality. You haven't come across that term before because I just coined it. Huh? Volvo mentality. So if you, from here on, as you hear it, you know where it came from. And you can pay me royalties if you use it. All right? Volvo mentality. What on earth is that? Well, those who have lived in the UK for some time and are my age, you might remember this advert. Yeah? If you want to drive safely down the road and be kind of cocooned in your own cotton world, buy a Volvo. They're safe as houses. You'll be insulated from everything that might get at you. That's a Volvo mentality that some people have. I'm a Christian, nothing's going to happen to me. There's another one here that I also found very interesting. Cage saves life. And that's one of the things that Volvo was saying. You know, there's a cage. You might smash up, but you won't get hurt. What were their names? Tweety and Sylvester, weren't they? I wonder whether Twitter comes from that, Tweety. Possibly. You never know. And we have that mentality at times, don't we? I'm a Christian. Why is this happening to me? But no, we're living, we are humans living in a fallen world and therefore exposed to its many forms of suffering, be it disease, be it accidents, be it the effects of the actions of others, i.e. prejudices, abuse, especially if you're exiled nowadays and an immigrant. I'm an immigrant, by the way. I haven't suffered from that, I have to say. Suffering from everything around us. And you might say, well, it is unjust, isn't it? Yes, but that's the world we live in. We live in an unjust and falling world. And therefore, we're exposed to everything that it throws at us from time to time or constantly as well. But even if we accept, accept that as part of life, 
many a times, and although we might not have the Volvo mentality, many a times our human nature takes over, doesn't it? Or it takes center stage for some time. At times for a short period, at times for a longer period. It takes center stage. And we begin to complain. Why should I have to go through this? Why is it happening to me? Why does God allow it? We are also exposed to some adverts that said, at least in Spanish, porque te lo mereces. Yeah, have you heard that one? I don't like that at all. I was going to say I hate it. I shouldn't be talking in those terms here. I'm stressing it from the platform. But it gives the impression you're so good that you deserve that great car. You deserve that great perfume, that watch. You deserve it. You're good. By implication, if something happens that we don't like, we say, you know, if I'm good, I'm not bad. Why are bad things happening to me? You see how adverts get into your head? I wonder what David thought. He had just been anointed king of Judah, and then he would become king of united Israel. And not long afterwards, you know, he's appointed future king, and not, not long afterwards, he's been, he's been chased all over the place like a rabbit. I wonder whether he was thinking, you know, hold on here, I'm the next king. This shouldn't be happening to me. Thank God that we're not alone in that thing and at times we can, we can take comfort that others, even those called a man after God's own heart, might have fallen into that. And you can read some of his, uh, some of his um, psalms and see how he reacts against God. And although he calls to God, he said, you know, God, when will you answer me? How long? I might be hearing some saying, anyway, Tim, yeah, but there's no comfort knowing that, that I should expect things like that to happen to me. What's the point of just, you know, knowing that it's an expectation? That doesn't help me much, does it? And you might be right there. And this, of course, raises a question. When we come face to face with the darker side of life, of pain and disease, of broken relationships, Untimely deaths of some of our loved ones. Whatever the circumstances we go through, we have gone through, we might go through. Those that shake our little world around us and send us scurrying for cover. When that happens, what stands firm amid all the uncertainties of life? What stands inalterable around us in the face of changing, challenging, difficult and unjust circumstances that perplex us, that cause us to wobble, that brings us down and shake our faith? Where do we turn to? Do we just take a stoic attitude and say, well, come on, I can handle this? Hold on a little while and we'll peter out eventually. Others might say, you have to rejoice. And that is true. But it's not so easy, is it? In the midst of it. That's why I was saying. Suffering is deeply personal and emotional. 
And at times we shouldn't, shouldn't go around and say, well, just rejoice, you know. Rejoice in the middle of it. <laughs> There's more to it than that, is there not? Where do we turn to? Peter has this question in mind when he writes to the exiles, living in a hostile society, product of a fallen world, and therefore subject to, go, to, to what goes with it. Suffering, rejection, ostracized, being a nuisance, falling to dangers and disease. These exiles were possibly suffering the effects of bad health and disease as they were at the fringe of society. Just have to look at the news and, and you know what that means for your health and well-being when you're at the fringe of society and you're being ostracized. In a nutshell, they are at the mercy of what others are doing to them and at the mercy of the darker side of life. Those are the recipients of Peter's message. And in contrast to that, to what others are doing to them and what life is throwing at them in all its fury, the Apostle Peter sets before them and reminds them of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them and is doing for them. See the contrast? And what he has done for us. So as I said... We're not going to dwell into the, on, on the 18 verses. I'm just going to take a couple. And this is the, the crux of those verses and the scent of this message. What has the Lord done for me? He has rescued me, says verse 18. And please, please notice what Peter is not referring to when he says he rescued me. And he's not referring to it, and perhaps we would have expected him to have referred to it, but he's not. What is he not referring to? Well, condemnation. It doesn't say we're rescued from condemnation, does it? It doesn't say we have been rescued from the power of sin. We have been rescued from the slavery of sin. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say either that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred somewhere else to the kingdom of our Lord. It doesn't say that. What Peter is saying is that the Lord has rescued us from our futile ways. See the difference? All the other verses, of course they're true, but this is not what Peter is referring to at the moment. He's saying you have been rescued, redeemed from your futile ways. Now, before we dwell on that, let me first turn for a minute to how did he rescue me? And it says, with the precious blood of Christ. Now, if I said to Eric here, Eric, would you buy me, or buy off me this, this iPhone? No, it does everything. Beautiful, nice, neat little one. Does everything except serving a cup of coffee, but otherwise everything else. Would you buy it off me for 5,000 euros? <laughs> you haven't seen his face, but <laughs> it more or less says, unlikely, old chap. You're a friend of mine, but no. Why would that be? 
because the measure of what you pay must be proportional to the worth of what you're buying. If I say to him, you know, 20 quid or euros, I say yes. It has to be proportional to what it is worth. And that is what we have been rescued with, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine your worth, that your creator should give his life so that you, I, us might have life. Imagine your worth. when we despair and hurt and we question the reason for suffering as King David did and he would say to the Lord you know I've been crying all night my bed is soaked my bones are whatever expression he used I can't remember at the moment and when we become impatient with God in the midst of the suffering and the hurt, let us meditate on and grasp the immense dimension of God's love for us. Greater love has no one than this. That somebody should lay his life for somebody else. We must turn to him. That's the only thing we can do, or the main thing we should do, for he cares for us. You know, he's coming by our side. He is our comfort, because we're so worth, we have so much worth for him. We can only find consolation in him who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, says Isaiah. And it's quoted in Matthew. I remember being on holiday once, and uh, one of our daughters got rather ill. She was only about, what, 18 months, 22, 24 months. And she took a liking to the heated water in the swimming pool. Imagine what happened. Anyway, drinking it. She was drinking it as if there's no tomorrow. So she... I had a massive gastroenteritis. I remember her lying on the, on the bed, you know, almost passing out. I was, I was sitting there thinking, you know, if I could only take that on myself and free her from it, if I could only do that. The Lord is by our sides, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yes, we will be suffering, but he's by our side. And it's not just that our life is invaluably precious our faith too says verse 7 so he will care for our faith too as we shall see what did he rescue me from my futile ways in Spanish it says from uh, nuestra vana manera de vivir vain way of living futile ways but before we go any further allow me an illustration I don't know whether you have heard of this evangelical ministry called Nueva Luz. And it's an evangelical ministry of assistance to the blind and visually impaired. And it was started by a, 
a Christian brother, an elder in one of the evangelical free evangelical churches here in Madrid. He was a very active businessman, very energetic. And I think he was in a hotel somewhere, and he decided to go on, on, out on the balcony, and as energetic and active as he was, he, he didn't realize that the sliding glass door was closed. Smashed into it. After many operations, he was left totally blind. Totally blind, at the age of 47. Went through periods of confusion, of bitterness and despair, a period of grieving. It's a very complicated thing that, isn't it? And a lengthy process. But it's a needed and healthy process as well. The grieving. He went through deep pain. Years later, I knew him well. He would say to me, you know, Tim, do you realize what going blind is like? We don't even remember the faces of your four kids. They were older kids by then, of course. Going through much pain. Questioning the Lord. I think he was close to depression as well. You can imagine it and you can understand it too. And when the Lord considered it appropriate, after that time of grieving, and after the time of listening to the complaints and questions of our brother, Antonio, his name is, was. The Lord sent him a brother, a Welsh missionary, with a message that was basically this. Time has come for you to stop asking the Lord why. And ask the Lord what for. Change your way of thinking. And that is what exactly Peter's saying when he's speaking to the exiles. Have you noticed it? Did you notice it in the reading this morning by Brother Andrew? It is true that he has rescued us from condemnation and the power of sin and the dominion of darkness, to mention just a few. But Peter has specifically saying here, rescued us from our futile, futile ways, which includes being rescued from a deeply ingrained human thought pattern that does not conform to the purpose of salvation. That's what we're rescued to, from. Yes, it is a process of salvation. We have been saved. But it is a process of salvation until we are made to the image of Christ and conform to his image. And this Welsh missionary said to my friend, you know, as I said, stop asking why. Stop asking the Lord why. And it is now time to ask the Lord what for. Ask him what the purpose of you going blind is. Well, Tim, you might be saying, this is not what Peter's saying. Well, I put to you that he is. There was a what for to our suffering. Have you noticed that? Verse 7. You have been grieved with various trials, so that. That's the what for. So that. The tested genuineness of your faith, etc., etc. So that, that is the what for. 
Test your faith. See. See if it is genuine. See if it needs to grow deeper and more robust to determine even if it's been sidetracked. My friend was thinking the way he did, but his thinking was radically changed. Not why, but what for. And Nueva Luz was born, a ministry to the blind and to the visually impaired in Spain and Central and South America too. And he called it New Light. Having gone through the grieving process with the Lord by his side, his physical darkness was turned to a ministry of spiritual light for the benefit of others. What a change in his futile way of thinking, wasn't it? When we go through suffering and trials, we will ultimately only make sense of them when we put them in the context of our salvation. I don't know whether I'm falling a little behind here. Put them, our suffering and trials, in the context of our salvation. On the one hand, the immense love of Christ. We are precious to him. He is the source of all comfort. Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to do what? Comfort others. That is what the director of Nueva Luz did. Once he was comforted, once he was able to see the bigger content, and once he went away from why to what for, he was serving others. On the one hand, the immense love of Christ. I'm going ahead of myself. And on the other, suffering, which is the purpose of our salvation. Test the genuineness of our faith. Is it responding as it should do? Is your faith responding as it should do? I have to admit that mine many times is not. Does it mean the expected specifications? You know what happens when a beautiful new car comes out? They test it, smash it against a block. What for? Well, to see if it's where it should be. Does it need some improvement? Is everything working fine? No, well, we designed this a little bit wrong. We, we should better this. What is our faith like? Does it need changing? Does it need tweaking? Does it need improving? Is it fostering a deeper relationship with our Lord? Is it fit for purpose in serving our Lord Jesus Christ? That my friend Antonio wouldn't have been fit for purpose to do what he did unless he went through the suffering of being blind for the rest of his life. At 47, I think he died at 84, 85, something like that. Imagine the years not being able to remember the face of your own kids. But he was fit for purpose for, our, for his Lord, our Lord. It is part of the process of our salvation to exercise our faith as we go through life and to do so in a practical way, trusting and resting in our Lord Jesus Christ amidst life's multitude of circumstances and experiences, suffering included. It's not easy, is it? I very much identify with that father that is written about, or Mark in his chapter 9 wrote about, you know, when his son 
which in, I guess, medical terminology nowadays would, would, would mean epilepsy, had epilepsy, was being thrown into the water, almost drowning, was thrown into the fire, almost burning. And the Lord says, everything is possible for those who believe. And the father, and I identify with him so much, what did he say? With utter and disarming honesty, I believe, but help my unbelief. I wonder whether he had his belief in his mind, theoretical, and he needed to bring it to the practical level. I believe, help my unbelief. That is my experience, at least. We need to bring our faith down to the practicalities of life, beyond the intellectual, dimen intellectual dimension. So to conclude, and we've gone slightly over time, we are living in exile. We are only temporary residents on this earth but we are citizens of heaven. So my question is, are we living as exiles? We are exiles, but are we living as exiles? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the re renewal of your mind. Get away from futile way of thinking. Hmm? By that, by testing, you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Afflictions are used by God to strengthen our faith, purify our hearts, increase our love for our Lord Jesus Christ, deepen our dependence upon our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen our hope in the many promises of our Lord Jesus Christ, and increase our faith in his word. Last time I was up here, I put this picture up, and I do so again. That's life's, our life's path, isn't it? Below are the hands of God himself. Eternal God is your dwelling place when we go through the difficult periods of time, when we hit the dark side of life, we can only turn to our dwelling place who is underneath and underneath are his everlasting arms. May the Lord settle these thoughts and this meditation in our hearts this morning. Amen.